you got your mojo working? Do you just want to give it a good kickstart? Either way, you've come to the right station. The Mojo Radio Show will help you get your mojo working at work and at play. I got my mojo working, but it just won't work on you. Hey everybody, and welcome to this week's edition of the Mojo Radio Show. Been on a bit of a roll lately, had a just a cracking list of guests, and I gotta say this week we've really hit the big time. We've got a guy who is currently featuring on a movie on Netflix. He is a world opinion leader on minimalism and the exile lifestyle. Cracking, cracking show that we know you're going to love. If you're new to the show, what do we do here? Well, we just talk to people we think have got their mojo working in some aspect of their life. It could be in work, it could be in play, it could be in sport, it could be in community. We talk to them, extract their thoughts, their feelings, their opinions, stuff that we can steal, put into our own world and hopefully share with somebody else. And speaking of which, before we start the show, Robbo, I got a phone call during the week from Blake Beatty. Ah, uh, the Beatster. And speaking of sharing it with somebody else, he, it's just an amazing initiative, you know. He started a thing called Pay It Forward Day. Remember we did a segment on Pay It Forward Day last year? Yeah, we did this last year, absolutely. Mm. Yeah, great cause. Now, what this is, folks, is it's a day, it's, mark this in your diaries, Friday the 28th of April, so it's not far away. And the idea is that you do something nice for somebody else. They then receive that. They're very grateful. And then they pay it forward to somebody else. What's amazing about this thing, right, is he he has started this in Australia some years back. It's now in 80 countries around the world. Wow. They're expecting 10 million acts of kindness on this day alone. And what is wicked is he also has 70 state and city proclamations. Wow, that's great. I don't know what that means, but it sounds awesome. Well, I, I would imagine that it's sort of like, you know, hey, we're actually calling it. We're actually going to name the day. So um, so that's pretty cool. I think that's great. Mm. And it's not hard to do. This is an Australian guy mm. living in Sydney. He had this thought, started it. And I mean, I've known Blake for many, many years. I've seen what he's done with this. But you list the countries that are getting behind this. There's countries like Belarus, Belsize, Brazil, Costa Rica, Czech Republic, Croatia, Germany, France, Georgia, uh, Grand Caymans, Israel, Italy, Jordan, Kazakhstan. You know what's interesting about that list? All big downloaders of the Mojo Radio Show, those countries, massive. Belarus particularly. Probably (laughs) some of our... Biggest audiences. Big Belarus. Through the roof. Uh, Belarus and Belsize, the big countries. Yeah, yeah, the big ones. Uh, The the two Bs. The two Bs. (laughs) I really, I mean, you look at this list, it's very, very impressive. And uh, to know it came from a guy with a dream, we've spoken to him before about it in previous episodes. We must get him back at you. He's a good good mate of the show. He's a very good good writer and speaker on strategy. So we must get him back on again. You know the thing I really like about it, though, is that it's so easy to be be involved. It's not like you've got to go out and do something specifically. It's, like last year, there was a, a, an elderly lady in front of me in the coffee shop buying a coffee, so I paid for her coffee. Um, it's not hard to do. It's it, you can do any. You can do it anywhere. You could pay for someone's bus fare. You could, you know, just help someone across the street. Anything like that. On the twenty eighth of April this year, I'd be happy if you made. I'll pay for my own, but you just make it for me. Just deliver. <laughs> just deliver it to me at the studio. Yeah, I don't think I've ever made you a coffee that you've been happy with, though. That's the problem. Or ever <laughs> shared a Tim Tam. No, well, they're not for sharing. <laughs> exactly. You hide away. You squirrel them away in the corner. It's like no. These are mine. Yeah. Get your own. If you want to share biscuits, there's some Scotch fingers over there in the corner, mate. Oh, 
What? <laughs> Fred Glutard. <laughs> but, 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 but don't touch your dial because you got a treat coming up with a batch of real big stars. The Mojo Radio Show. We're going to get all minimalist this week, is that right? Yes. Now, our guest this week is Colin Wright, who is an author, uh, an international speaker, and he also does his own podcast, which is very different to ours, but it's called Let's Know Things. What is it's, good? <laughs> no, it's intellectual. <laughs> but where I came across this guy... A number of years ago when he was written about a lot and then he featured in a documentary which went worldwide and it's now on Netflix. So anybody who has Netflix, you can watch The Minimalist's movie. And where he came to fame or came to public recognition was he was travelling the world and he has been travelling the world since 2009. So he's been homeless essentially. Wow the last seven or eight years. And what was curious about this guy is he travelled with two backpacks and in total he had 51 things that he owned in his life. And every four months he would say to the readers of his blog, The Exile Lifestyle, where should I go next? And by popular demand he would pick a location, pack up his two backpacks and he'd go and live there for four months. He would write about it and then he would ask his readers, where should I go next? Now, things have changed slightly because he has kind of put down roots. But what is really interesting with Colin is that the the philosophy behind the exile lifestyle has remained. And we sort of dig into the backstory, minimalism, how it works, how it's changed, and how does someone who's been traveling nonstop for seven or eight years, how do you start to put down roots? What's it like? He has a super popular blog at Exile Lifestyle. And I've got to say, this was a show that I've been looking forward to for a long, long time. Colin, welcome to the Mojo Radio Show, mate. Thank you very much for having me. Now, you've come to be known as living the Exile Lifestyle. Can you just run that for us? How do you describe that to people? Well, a lot of it superficially at least, has to do with with travel. And that's a a key component of what I wanted to do with my life. And and back in 2009, basically the short rundown is that in 2009, I was running a branding studio in Los Angeles and living a a far more conventional life and doing decently well professionally and pursuing a very specific kind of prestige and money-driven lifestyle and realized that I wasn't getting any closer to the traveling thing that I told myself was a priority, but I wasn't uh, living as if it was a priority. So I decided to give myself a deadline to get out of Dodge and to try something else to actually start traveling while I was still young enough to bounce back from all the, the bad choices I would no doubt make and uh, gave myself four months then then left and started traveling. So since then, since 2009, uh, the a portion of the exile lifestyle has been about traveling and moving to a new country every four months or so based on the votes of my readers. And then the, the other part of it, kind of the deeper level, uh, the travel is a component, but the deeper level is kind of living in a non-standard way, being an exile from convention and from the, the traditional path that has all the guideposts, the one that we're told to walk, but then it, kind of figuring out what the ideal path actually is for you and for your specific desires, your specific goals and pursuing that and figuring out how to pursue that. And for me, that means a whole lot of travel, which fits well with the, the exile thing. But it, there's other components to it as well, which is very much about being able to throw yourself into work that you love and being able to, to grow and learn and pivot and surround yourself with people that you care about, things of that nature. Let's go down that lane just for a second till we catch up with where you are today. My understanding is that there was a shirt. There's a shirt that changed the trajectory of your life, shall we say. 
Can you just share that story with how that shirt changed your perception of not only your world to go into this exile lifestyle, and I love that term, but also how it changed your view of stuff? Yeah, they, it's funny because I've, I've told that shirt story a few different times now, and it's something that locks into people's mind, I think, because I, I think it, it really resonates with a lot of people. Everybody has this shirt in their wardrobe, uh, in their drawers somewhere. Uh, for me, basically I had just decided that I wanted to change things and I was trying to figure out how I would adjust my lifestyle so that I could travel and running the gamut, trying to come up with all different ways that that might possibly work. And what I was kind of thinking at the time was that I would take all this crap that I had. I had so much stupid stuff filling up this townhouse that I had. Uh, and I was thinking, well, I'll just put it in storage. And that way, you know, if this travel thing doesn't work out, I can come back and get it, or maybe I'll move it around with me. Or I was thinking in conventional moving terms, the way that you do, you put it all in a big truck or put it in a warehouse somewhere. But then I, I woke up the next morning after getting back from this road trip during which I, I initially decided to make this change. And the first thing I pulled out of my drawer was this shirt and it was like an expensive shirt. It was a nice shirt, but it, it, it did not look good on me. It, it was totally oddly shaped on me and it was completely the wrong color and everything about it was just the opposite of what I should wear if, if I don't want to look like an idiot. And, and I picked it up and then I started to put it back in the drawer like I always do. And I just had this moment of clarity, like why why am I paying rent to store this shirt? It's occupying part of the real estate that I pay for. Like I've got this thing that serves no value, will never serve any value to me. And yet it's nice. It's a nice shirt. Someone could wear this. This would be great for somebody. And I suddenly had this this vision of myself as like Pharaoh in his tomb, hoarding all his riches, you know, just so that nobody else can have it, right? Like there's no purpose to it except to keep other people from having it. And so I like, I, I remember very distinctly crumpling the shirt up in my hand and throwing it on the floor. And then I rifled through the rest of the shirts and I realized that the majority of them, like 80 or 90% of those clothes in my drawer, I never wore. I, I had a cycle of like five or six shirts that I would wear and then they would get washed and I'd wear them again. And so I, I took out everything that I hadn't worn in months and then I went through my closet and did the same thing. And that effort tends to snowball. And so what I ended up doing is spent the next couple of days going through every room in the house and finding all the stuff that I didn't use and realizing that it was like 90% of what I owned that I never used and that I had just because I could afford it. So why not get it? That's what you're supposed to do. And that's what kind of set me down the path of recognizing that one, my stuff wasn't important. What I wanted to pursue and to spend my time and energy and resources on were experiences. I wanted to grow. I wanted to learn. Um, but also that, you know, me hoarding things was probably the wrong way to go about it. And that I could probably go do that and pursue those ends with just what I could carry with me. I could do it all with carry on luggage because essentially what I needed could be slimmed down to that degree. So you've, when I first came across your stuff, Colin, maybe a few years ago, the story that, or the blog that I read or the podcast I heard was about this guy that lived out of carry on. And I think the stuff I read said you had... 51 odd possessions that you got. So we had that shirt and you said, not today shirt. And not you today. threw it down. <laughs> you grabbed these two carry-ons and you said, I wonder if I could put my life into two carry-ons, which you then 
have taken with you around the world now for seven or eight years. That's true, isn't it? You really got it down to the stuff you could carry in two bags. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I, I came to realize as a result of that snowballing effect, essentially, that what really actually brought me value, what I actually needed could fit in like a little laptop bag that I could slip under the seat on an airplane and a duffel bag I could put in the overhead compartment. Where I'm, I'm really curious to go now is that you did that for seven or eight years since 2009 and for whatever reason, which we'll get to, you have now set down roots for 12 months in the same place in Wichita, Kansas. <laughs> what, I, what I would like to, to, and I'm sure a lot of people would like to know is how how is that transition for you from going on the road, moving every four months at the whim of your readers and fans? You've now been in the same place for nine or 10 months. Is that really uncomfortable for you? It is immensely uncomfortable on certain levels, like psychologically and philosophically to a certain degree. And, and that's what I wanted, though. I, I came to a realization after my last uh, home, my last overseas home, which was in the Philippines, where people voted for me to go, that although I still enjoy traveling in that way and I still will continue to travel in that way in, in fits and starts at different times, but it was also something that was becoming a little bit predictable and which makes sense in a way, you do anything for seven or eight years, even though it is predicated on being unpredictable because other people are voting for you to go there and it's a culture and a language and a cuisine and everything else that you're unfamiliar with. Even that can become a little bit predictable in its unpredictability to the point where you're still being challenged, but not in new ways. And for me, uh, every time I've come back to the U.S. in between one of these these other homes elsewhere, I've challenged myself and I've taken a look around. I've looked at like apartments in different cities and I've looked at cars because I haven't owned a car. I haven't had an, a, a lease that was longer than three or four months uh, or three or four or five months in, in seven years. I haven't owned furniture in seven years, like little stupid, simple things that everyone else is very familiar with. And I was at one point, but now it's so unfamiliar and I have changed so much in that time period from age 24 to now where uh, next month I'll be 32 like it, a lot has changed and so I don't even know what kind of furniture I like you know I, I haven't owned a car <laughs> since there's been hybrid vehicles or not since they became popular anyway so for me that that was something that every time I thought about it it made me so like gut punch cringe worthy uncomfortable that I saw it as something that I had to face that I had to check it out and see how I would be in these different circumstances. And, and I would use it too. The other reason that I was thinking of doing it now during this time period was that I had also started a few projects, including a podcast uh, called Let's Know Things that I was really enjoying putting together, but it was incredibly difficult to do from the road. Like to have a decent microphone in your bag. First of all, it, it looks like a sex toy when they put it in the x-ray scan. <laughs> So I was getting pulled out of line every single time I would pass <laughs> through customs. Um, and they'd give me this look like, oh, I thought that was something else. And I'm like, yeah, I'm 
saying. Uh, yeah, right, but, yeah. but So there was difficulties <laughs> in that practical way. <laughs> but it was also difficult just to get a consistent environment in which to record and to have consistent electricity and consistent internet access, which was an issue in some of my homes in, in the Philippines. So it, it all seemed to align. I thought, you know, I'll take some time, work on these projects, do some other things that I've been meaning to do for seven years, like learn to cook and learn to play piano and these things that I've been putting off because it hadn't been the right situation for seven years in a row. Uh, I'll get around to that, but I'll also be facing these challenges, these things I'm afraid of, like having to buy my own furniture for the first time in seven years and having to get a car uh, to, to live in a place like Wichita. You have to have a car. Um, so I, I, I really wanted to expose myself to those things, but also to a brand new culture that uh, that was something that also made me somewhat uncomfortable. So I find this really interesting, Colin. So what does an exile lifestyle look like now that you are faced with that? I mean, the, the gold for me is this whole being predictable and being unpredictable. So you want it to be unpredictable, so you travelled and moved every four months, but then after a period of seven or eight years, that became predictable. So you went to Wichita, which in a lot of cases people would say is pretty unpredictable and wouldn't be most people's first choice. Now you've set up for a period of time to allow you to do these other things, but you want to be unpredictable, but living in a lifestyle typically would be predictable. <laughs> predictably, yes. predictably unpredictable. I think that's what we're saying, isn't it? This sounded good in my head. I'm not sure if it came out very well. Uh, no, that's, that's about right. <laughs> what's, what's, what's the exile lifestyle look like for somebody who wants to be unpredictable living in a predictable world as most of us would see it? Yeah, well, so first off, it's uh, unpredictable might be the wrong word because uh, it is kind of that, but it's unpredictable in a way that challenges you with with difficult frictions. Like when anything becomes too easy, you kind of stop growing because there's not frictions, there's not boundaries to push up against. And so you're not, it's almost like working out. You know, if you work out lifting the same weights forever, your muscles don't really grow. Whereas if you push it just to the, the border of what's comfortable, that's when you're at a, a good spot so that you're not like crippling yourself. You're not damaging yourself, lifting too much weight, but you're doing just enough more that, uh, you know, you're, you're allowing the sinew to, to develop over time. And it's kind of like that psychologically and, and philosophically is that I'm always looking for things that will push up against what I think I know and will challenge me to to test the beliefs that I have and the way that I live and, and everything, essentially. So a place like Wichita for me is, you know, anything is normal to somebody for people who live in these places that I've been living. But for me, it was a really like off the beaten path type of location. And it's a place where the dominant political beliefs and religious beliefs and, and cultural beliefs are quite different from mine. And that, that to me seemed like an appealing way to bring those types of frictions back into my life because those, those other types of frictions, they're still valuable in a certain way, but this is so different from what I've experienced before and seemed so exotic to me comparably uh, that it seemed like a, a really great way to, to get a, a certain type of vertical leap that I wasn't getting in certain aspects of my life that I, that I wouldn't have gotten continuing to travel in outside cultures. Friction, good word. That's gold, Robert. That's gold. 
friction. Friction. Pulp friction. Well, it's good though because <laughs> it sort of it it means that the studio here was always a lot of friction in the studio. It means that we're on the right track. We're, we're exiles. Oddly enough, there's only friction in the studio when you're here, Gaz. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> just on that note, do you think a lot of us are living a life of just maintaining, and we? are not seeking this friction? I, I wouldn't necessarily say that. I, I think we're encouraged to do that in a lot of ways because um, <clears throat> if you think about it, very well-meaning people in our lives do not want us to face difficulty and stress and pain and discomfort. And that's that's a good thing. That's nice of them to not want us to to suffer, even if in some cases that suffering or that discomfort or that friction might help us grow in certain ways. You still don't want somebody to feel bad if you care about them. And so, you know, our parents, our teachers, our employers, like everybody in a lot of different ways will, will go out of their way to try to set us down a path where they know that we're taken care of and we're doing well and we are comfortable and secure. And comfort and security are not bad things. Those are, are good things to have, I would argue. But in a lot of cases, if you if you go too pure with that and go completely secure and completely comfortable to the point where you are never challenged, I think you can um, fall into a type of stasis and your world can get so solidified that it becomes brittle rather than staying malleable and allowing you to continue to grow in the way that you might otherwise. So, I mean, to each their own, for somebody, for perhaps a lot of people, I think that's great. I think security and comfort, maybe that is the thing that is most important to them, in which case that is great. The world is built for them. <laughs> but for the people who maybe want to, to to seek out a little bit of discomfort alongside being able to, you know, pay the bills and, and afford their rent, um, that takes a little bit of additional effort in, in that you do need to, to seek out difficulties to a certain degree. Um, not for everybody and difficulties and stressors and frictions, that will mean something very different to everyone. Um, somebody who grew up traveling, for example, might not have found the same challenges and interesting frictions that I did in travel because I, I hadn't left the country until I was 24. So for me, that was a very challenging, new, interesting thing. And for them, it might not be. In the same way that coming to Wichita and buying furniture and having a car, uh, for me right now is still this big, crazy novel thing where I'm learning a whole lot about myself and about the world for a whole lot of people who live in Wichita and have always owned furniture and have had a car since you know they were able to drive, that is not something terribly interesting to them. So you really do have to figure out where your personal stress points are and your own boundaries are. Uh, it's not going to be a one-size-fits-all uh, type yeah. of situation. Is it possible that there are people among us, in fact, perhaps the majority of people, when you say you are in Wichita and you are doing these things and learning a lot about yourself. Is it possible that a lot of people in their own minds have these things they value, these philosophies they hold true, they're buying into what you're saying, but then the reality of how they spend their time, their energy, the possessions they surround themselves with are in complete conflict to that, but they don't understand it? They don't appreciate it? Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's actually super common. I, I think if it's, it's probably one of the most common things that I've seen actually for whatever philosophy you might hold, most of us are more comfortable on the theoretical level rather than the practical level. Um, there's this really, really great, uh, Icelandic word that I'm in love with, um, leaf specky. 
that essentially means the practical philosophy by which you live your life that you show through your actions. So rather than in English, when we might say my philosophy is this, this, and this, these are my beliefs, that doesn't necessarily entail that we live those beliefs. Whereas you do not tell someone what your leaf specky is, you show them through the way that you live. And that is, it's a different type of philosophy that is practiced as opposed to um, told to someone else. And I I love that because it, it kind of put into one word something that I felt that I was trying to get a grip on, like what I was trying to accomplish and hone in on was trying to make sure that my actions aligned as perfectly as possible to whatever my beliefs are at at that time. And and those are bound to change as is my lifestyle. But I like to feel philosophically aligned as if I'm acting in accordance with what my actual beliefs are. So it's difficult and it takes a whole lot of effort. And you might even put in an immense amount of effort and realign your entire, entire life to do that only to find that what you thought you believed is not actually what you believe because you've learned something new or seen something new or met someone new who convinced you of something else. But the, the journey, I think, toward that alignment is the really valuable thing. And I, I think anybody probably, even if there's somebody who's like a guru on this already, there's still little things that they can do to get a little bit closer to that alignment. Hello to all our friends in Iceland. Icelandic gold right there, Robbo. <laughs> leaf, leaf speech. Icelandic gold. I'm it's just Viking, put it out gold. There. Viking gold. <laughs> Viking gold. Viking <laughs> gold. <laughs> when you started to travel, how did you know it was the right thing to do? I, I honestly don't think that you do until you get out there, unfortunately. And like for me, what I did, I, I wasn't positive either. This is something that I had kind of wanted to do for my adult life. I, it seemed really integral because I was becoming increasingly aware that I was very knowledgeable in a bookish sense in that I read a whole lot and I was always pretty good at school. And, and so I was good at picking up that type of information, but I felt incredibly ignorant about on the ground stuff outside of the places that I'd already lived, which at that point had been California and Missouri. So it was a very very limited perspective that I was basing all of my ideas and judgments on. And so I was becoming increasingly aware of that. And I felt that travel would help me fill in the blanks, but I didn't actually know like if I would actually enjoy it. And I wasn't a particular fan of going, flying on airplanes at the time. And I, I had never really been on a train. And so all these elements of it, things that I now like am passionately in love with, those were things that I, I might've hated. You know, the, I, I really had no idea going in. So I left myself little outs. I was telling myself, I'll do this for a year and then see how it goes and, and used it as kind of a lifestyle experiment, setting an end date where I would check in with myself and see if it was actually something that made sense to continue. Or I could say, okay, here's what I learned from this. I enjoyed this. I did not enjoy this. Where do I go from here? And fortunately for me, um, it was something that I enjoyed and I, it just pulled me deeper and deeper and deeper into it. I have met a whole lot of people on the road, though, who thought that it was like a sexy idea because it's a thing that that looks really good on Instagram, but you you do not portray on Instagram the 13-hour flights or the the 27-hour bus rides through the middle of nowhere with the the one terrible broken bathroom at the back of the bus. And like that's the stuff that doesn't get reported on that makes up a great deal of your lifestyle. A whole lot of the time that you spend traveling is not the great photo opportunity moment. It's the, you know, the terrible bus with the terrible bathroom. 
So, yeah, I mean, I think the best way to know is just to get out there, give yourself a deadline to check in with yourself so that you're not committing uh, in an absolute way so that you'll be crushed if it's not something that you actually enjoy. But give yourself enough of a line to kind of allow yourself to, to try it out and to really go into it without expectations or with as few expectations as you possibly can. Everyone talks about, you know, being in the moment. And I'm just interested with you've got a beautiful eye for photography, you you seem to be someone who can observe what's going on around them. How do you particularly bring yourself to the moment? I try very hard to ensure that I live it before I document it. And that that's sometimes easier said than done, particularly um, the, the last couple of years, I've become really aware of how useful some of these tools that I once derided things like Snapchat and Instagram and things of that nature were not really my cup of tea when they first came out. And I I carried the, the most terrible, cheapest little smartphone I possibly could. So I had maps if I needed it and could check emails, but I didn't need any of that other stuff, I thought. Uh, But then I became aware that some of these tools are really excellent storytelling tools and a great way to show people who might not have the opportunity to travel the way that I do, either because of economic situation or because they don't have the right passport, usually a whole lot of dumb luck stuff. Um, Or or people who are thinking about traveling and don't know whether it's worth their time, they could check it out. So they they can go to the same museum that I'm going to and view it through my Snapchat and then maybe, you know, make some adjustments based on that. But... At the same time, you have to kind of avoid getting sucked in to the point where you are living your life through the lens of your camera phone. And you don't want to be viewing that that sunset through like a sepia-toned filter on Instagram. You want to actually see the sunset. Um, So for me, the way that I approach it, what I remind myself to do, and I catch myself most of the time, is I I go into what I call like my narration mode. And and it helps being a writer and writing about these, these travel stories sometimes is that I... I'm very careful to document in my mind so that I remember. And, and your own memory actually works better typically when you surround individual moments with context, when you can remember the specific colors and the way that they gradiate and the smells and the sounds and the textures and all those little um, sensory feelings that go along with any moment. I take a moment to take all of that in before I allow myself to take out my phone and take a photo of something. And sometimes that sucks in a way because you miss like the perfect moment where something cool is happening. But it's almost always better to have that moment stored long term in your memory than it is to have, you know, a stupid little photo that will probably, you know, be put into the cloud somewhere and you'll forget about it in a couple of months anyway. (laughs) That was a Kodak moment right there. That was Colin's Kodak moment. I've heard you talk about using your phone intentionally. And I believe you did a TED talk or a TEDx talk on living intentionally. And that really struck me as something quite powerful. How do you just, how do you tell a story about that? Typically, uh, the way that I describe intentional living in general, it's essentially just another way of saying minimalism, where it's figuring out what's vitally important to you and then stripping away the extraneous, getting rid of the superfluous whatever so that you have more time, energy, and resources, including money, to spend on the stuff that actually matters. And and it absolutely applies to everything. And so for me, the way that I use my devices of all kinds, it's very intentional in that I know exactly what I want from these devices. I do want to document some things and share some things and communicate with some people some of the time. But 
I like I have uh, on my my computer on my laptop that I have open right now. I've got uh, like tape over the camera, like, and I I keep Skype and everything else closed, and I keep my Google Hangouts turned off and I have all my notifications on my phone turned off. So it never makes a sound or vibrates or does anything unless I tell it to. And so trying to make sure that these things, that they know their place, essentially, that uh, I've, I've made sure to to figure out what their actual purpose is and then not get sucked into all of the extra things that might be good for the app developers because the more they can keep you engaged and tapping around and looking at advertisements, the more they can keep you enraged and sharing things and clicking like on things, the more money they make. It makes perfect sense for them to want to draw you in more. But for me, that's not the best way to use my time. I I know that I work a whole lot better when I can sit and focus for hours at a time and know that I'm not going to be interrupted by my device shouting out for attention. A lot of people could learn a lesson from that, Gaz. It's not, it's not easy right away, but... <laughs> no, I, I completely buy into what you're saying. And I'm wondering if you go on the flip side, Colin, is there an insecurity that comes when you live an intentional life, whether it be with your devices or your world or how you select who you spend time with? If you, if you look at everything you're doing with intention to say, is this really taking me towards my goals? Is it enhancing me? Is it entertaining me? Make me feel good? Whatever the filters are you put across it, is there like a, uh, is there an insecurity of moving away from the herd of what everyone else is doing? I, I think there absolutely could be. And, and there, basically you can take anything to an extreme too. Um, you could do it for the wrong reason. You could do it just to be contrary. Um, and, and there's actually, there's good arguments to be made for that in a way to be zigging while everyone else is zagging allows you to come at things from a different perspective. Um, but it's also probably not great because that is kind of just being guided by the herd that in the way that you're trying to avoid, but in the opposite way, rather than following the, the same movement pattern as everybody else. Um, what I try to do, what I try to do to counter that just in case to not get, you know, caught up in drinking my own Kool-Aid or something like that accidentally is to just regularly check in and just say, okay, what am I actually trying to accomplish with this? Is this actually doing that? Should I try this other thing? And and this is how I'll typically start using a new social network or a new piece of technology, uh, traveling in a slightly different way, living my life in a slightly different way, like trying to add these things to my life very intentionally, giving myself an experimental cutoff date so that I can check in and see what I learned from it. And then allowing myself to actually change based on what I learned. So rather than saying, I am the type of person who does things like this and nothing will ever change that, I try to allow myself to be whoever I, I am, whatever makes the most sense for, for what gets me closer to my goals, what allows me to be a, a more refined, growth-oriented, malleable version of myself, um, keeping that type of structure flexible so that I don't become too caught up in, for example, stripping down to the bare minimum of everything. It, you know, you're not more, uh, you're not morally superior by owning fewer things. Like you should own as many things as make sense for what you're trying to accomplish. And so actually you, you had mentioned before that you saw something about me owning like 50 some odd things actually stopped posting lists like that and numbers like counts of the things that I owned because it was giving some people the wrong idea feeling that they needed to get down to the bare minimum which is totally not the point and it's it's the wrong way to approach anything I think to try to follow somebody else's philosophy because they might be coming at it from a completely different place than you it's half time on the mojo show and time to pause 
for a cause. Hello Mojo Radio listeners, I'm Dr Alicia Jenkins from Insulin for Life Global. Our charity's mission is to help ease and save the lives of people around the world in disadvantaged countries. So we would like your help to do this by you providing us with any unwanted, in-date, unopened insulin and related diabetes supplies and with the shipping costs. Uh, to get uh, the supplies to the people who really need them. Check us out at www.inchlandforlife.org. Thank you. We interrupt this program to bring you a special bulletin. <laughs> <laughs> the Mojo Radio Show. Right. Ladies and gentlemen. Now. What's your process for deep work? And based on what Cal Newport wrote in the book Deep Work, where typically people are doing a lot of shallow work and not taking the time to sit and ponder, process, reflect... You, you seem to be a guy who puts a lot of thought into what you're doing in every aspect. What's your own process, Colin, for deep work? A huge component of that has been freeing up more time and, and uh, freeing myself from any uh, certain responsibilities, essentially. Like part of the reason that I stopped doing client work within the first year of traveling is that I realized that having other people being able to demand my time and attention whenever they like did not align well with what I was trying to do. And, and even if it was just the type of thing where I'd have to answer an email a day or something, even that in certain circumstances completely derails you from a thought process that you're having or something that you're trying to mold over or, or just you trying to sit and think about something before you before you actually get into doing anything practical or tangible. Um, there's a certain value that comes from sitting on like a 13-hour flight because you literally have nothing else that you can do uh, except sit there and be there. You cannot escape. You cannot distract yourself in as many ways as you usually can. And a big part of my lifestyle is about setting things up so that I have the ability to do that whenever I like. And that means being able to take the time to do stupid things, being able to take the time to do nothing, being able to take the time to work on something that actually does bring in money like, like a book but but to be able to put in the time on that book where I can sit down if I want and work for 20 minutes or I could sit and not come up for air for 16 or 17 hours. Um, being able to have that freedom of time to spend every hour of every day however I see fit, that is so integral uh, to me for the way that I process things. Um, whereas, you know, other habits and things like that, I've tried a whole lot of them. I've tried a lot of the different processes and uh, the, the the different capital letter things that have been written about in books. And, and I think a lot of those work for a lot of people. For me, though, I think uh, it's a blunt object that I need. I need to have 24 hours a day so that I could sit and spend it and either waste it away on something that seems totally not practical that leads to something practical later, or I can sit and apply my nose to the grindstone and put in the, the hard iterative work that is very often necessary to to learn what I need to learn and, and think what I need to think. How do you fit a grindstone in carry-on luggage? <laughs> very carefully. <laughs> so are you, a, are you an advocate for doing nothing? Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, this is something that I recommend to people all the time, but I always get the strangest look when I tell people to do it. And I understand, like... My, my lifestyle back in L.A. was I slept like four hours a night if I was lucky. And I, I stayed on a constant back and forth stream of caffeine and alcohol to try to stay awake and, and go to sleep. It was a really go, go, go type of thing because it's a very competitive place. And I was in a very competitive industry. And I, I was frankly a very ambitious, competitive person. And I mean, I'm still ambitious toward different things now. And part of that 
sating that ambition is recognizing that I am at my best when I'm able to take the time to just sit and think. And part of that is structured for since I started traveling and actually a little bit before that, I've taken 20 minutes a day to sit and do nothing, no listening to music, no tapping my feet, just sitting, staring at the wall, just allowing my brain to do whatever it likes. And then in between two, I have uh, tried out different modalities of meditation and I'm always kind of experimenting with different things like that. I usually take another 20 or 30 minutes a day at different points throughout the day to just sit and think regardless of what I'm doing. But then if a particular project requires it, like writing a book or something, I will very often just sit for an hour or two and mull over something until I get to a place where I actually know what I'm doing. So I can apply effort correctly rather than just putting an effort into to doing nothing. The term minimalism or being a minimalist, we spoke about that earlier in the show. Um, you were in the movie The Minimalists, which I'll come to in a second. So this has been a, you've been associated with this movement. Either people have associated you to it or you wanted to be a part of it. So that that's happened now and you are in this tribe of minimalists, do you still buy into it, in the, into the, 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 what is seen today to be a minimalist? Has it changed in your mind? Is it, an, is it a thing that you think is morphing into something different? Like, What's your view on that term now? It goes a little bit in both directions. I, I think on one hand, it's great because when I started getting into the, the concept of it, the philosophy of it, the um, honing in on what's important, and issuing the superfluous, essentially. Um, there wasn't much being written about it, unless you, you know, went back to like Heraclitus or something. So, you know, everything that we've written about it is really just a revamping of what the Greeks were saying about it. But uh, for a long time, you know, in the, the early 2000s, there weren't a whole bunch of like minimalism blogs on it, for instance. Uh, today, I like to a certain degree that there's a lot more voices involved and a lot of different perspectives and approaching it from different directions. So it's not just, frankly, single white dudes talking about it, uh, as <laughs> tends to be the case with a lot of things where it's like the single white dudes have a lot of opportunities that allow them to go public with it. And, but then that's just one perspective and a very privileged one, too. So getting to see a whole lot of different perspectives on the same general concept has been awesome. Uh, at the same time, in parallel to that, there is also the the minimalism movement that is more about buying certain products that have certain colorations and palettes and shapes, and they're very like Scandinavian design. And that's it's a different thing. And for some people, I think that's super valuable, people who really truly value aesthetics. Uh, but at the same time, it, it creates a little bit more work for those of us who are on the more philosophical side of it to explain to people that you don't have to buy anything or any specific thing to be a minimalist. It's not about owning the right clothing from the right label or uh, decorating your home so it's like stark white with only three pieces of furniture. Like you don't have to live in a very specific way that's being sold to you. And unfortunately, the, the Instagrammable version of minimalism very often implies that you have to spend in a certain way. So, so that to me is a little bit unfortunate. But I think the, the other side of things more than makes up for it, in my mind at least. There's a, a very good documentary Currently, we see here in Australia on Netflix. Um, so I suspect it's a worldwide Netflix doco called The Minimalist. And these, the guys that set it up, good mates of yours, uh, authors, podcasters, um, Joshua Fields, Milburn, and Ryan Nicodemus. They are good mates of yours. And 
I guess in a way, from a commercial aspect, I've seen those guys drive it through their podcast and their blogs and the doco and being complete advocates for it. And the doco is great. I mean, some of the people on there, Joshua Beckers and yourself, I mean, really paint a great picture of this. And they do answer a lot of the questions and, and things you're talking about. Because they're such good mates of yours and you've been part of that movement, so to speak, with them, if I was to talk to those guys and say, think about Colin, what would they, what would they say is your absolute strength as part of this tribe? <laughs> Probably being the weird single white guy. <laughs> is, uh, I mean, because it, again, like that's what the blogosphere has been for a very long time. And I, I got into the minimalism thing a little bit before them. So yeah. I got to, and they were like the single white dudes for a long time. Now they're, they're getting respectable and they're, you know, with, with long-term partners and kids and stuff. So they, they have entered a different, uh, a different stratification layer, I guess, in the, the minimalism process, whereas, whereas I'm still like the, you know, the, the single white dude who's traveling around and, and doing the blogger version of it. Um, but I don't know. I think we all, we all represent different uh, perspectives on this, like I said. And so even though our, our views on minimalism and the core philosophy is very similar, we, we all express it in very different ways and we all have very different priorities in how we apply it and different ideas of what a good life is in, when it comes to the specifics of how we want to live and what our ambitions and goals are. I, I love traveling and novelty and exposing myself to discomfort. Um, like Josh is, is a little bit more OCD and likes to have things very structured and likes to to have a really nice home and things just so and put together just so. And and so even though they come from the same philosophical underpinnings, we come from, uh, we have very, very different perspectives on how to apply that. And I think that's something that we, all of us, everybody who, who is in that sphere, all of us who, who know each other and, and interact, even when we have very different beliefs about everything from, you know, religion to politics and, and lifestyle and everything else, I think we all have a great deal of respect for each other in that we are living a lifestyle that makes sense to us, whatever that happens to me. I want to take you back to a saying by one of the great Stoics, Seneca, who, who, by the way, is a great fan of the Mojo Radio Show. Um, Constantly listening. <laughs> Seneca said, set aside a certain number of days during which you shall be content with the scantiest and cheapest fare with coarse and rough dress, saying to yourself all the while, is this the condition that I feared? I've heard this talked about before by people who, I don't know, talk about the Stoics and the lessons we can take from way back. This seems like a form of minimalism going way back to the era of the Stoics. Do you think that sort of philosophy is part of the bedrock behind minimalism and perhaps for yourself that by having less things, we can kind of appreciate the fact that we can get by without having a lot of stuff. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I, I would go even further and say that it's kind of a it's a key component for travel and really enjoying travel as well. Uh, but anybody, I think, could benefit from that. The, the way I usually think of it is 
uh, keeping, and it sounds bad, actually, I'm going to have to come up with a better way to say this at some point, but keeping your standards low enough so that when you have something that's average or above average, it's good. Like it's perceived as good because you're calibrated to something to enjoy something, to find the value in something that's usually looked down upon. So if you can, uh, if you start to go out and have, you know, $500 dinners every night, then at a certain point that becomes your new standard. That's your default. That's your resting point. And anything less than that becomes subpar. Whereas if you keep your resting point at, you know, 10 or $20, you're in a much better state because then you can still go out for a relatively meager sum and have something that seems extraordinary because you've set your default in such a way that there's still a great deal of space, you know, above your head, places where you can jump around and leap and experience things that are bigger than your default. Um, so setting, calibrating any of those things too high, uh, that, that, that doesn't mean that you should try to to live an impoverished lifestyle, whatever that happens to mean, uh, just in, in terms of not spending on anything or not having anything. But it does mean that the things that you do have and the things that you do prioritize, figure out ways to continue to appreciate them so that those don't become just a resting default status quo that you no longer appreciate and can never better. And anything less than it will seem like much less than it. It's about um, calibrating appropriately for what it is that you're trying to continue to enjoy and and recognize as something that uh, is capable of bringing you joy. Is that part of the filter that goes through your mind when you are calibrating your day? Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. I I actually I try to go back and forth too in terms of like the places that I live and the the general layout of my lifestyle, I guess would be one way of saying it. Like there have been in some countries I've I've lived in literal castles. Uh, when, I, when I was in Romania, I was in this kind of like castle church converted thing. This is an old party headquarters for the communists when they were in the country that, that wasn't burned down and the, the backyard was the botanical garden. And so sometimes it's relatively high end. Um, whereas in, in other places, I'm, I'm living in one of the cheaper places I can possibly find in a place that's, that's not extraordinary in any way. And anybody who comes to visit me is like, what the hell are you doing with your life? Um, to me, being able to go into either of those situations and appreciate it for what it is and figure out the value that uh, that arises from being in that type of situation because then it's different types of people it's different types of pleasures it's different types of routines and it allows you to to learn a lot about yourself but it also allows you to remember and to keep in mind that even if everything that you consider to be good in your life disappears, there's still a lot of other good things available. You just have to be willing to look for them and recognize them as such. If I say that you do the words self-actualization or self-awareness or oneness with oneself, what location immediately comes to mind for you, Colin, from your travels? that you could relate to those terms? There's a couple different places that could fit it in a couple different ways. This this might just be an adjacency bias coming up, but uh, one of the two locations I lived in in the Philippines was a place called Mayuyao, which is, let's see, like eight hours from Manila and then three hours from a tiny little town into the mountains in the middle of nowhere. I think it is like three and a half or four hours through the mountains where there's often mudslides to get to a hospital or an ATM or a bank or a grocery store or a restaurant or anything. So it's in the middle of nowhere, rice terraces, 
in a mountainous, rainy region of the the biggest island in the Philippines. And it's a, it's a place that very few people know about. They they don't have a tourism industry. They don't have any hotels. Uh, the only way I managed to find it was randomly clicking around to the most remote area I could find on Airbnb. And they, they had a building they were trying to turn into a hostel that they were renting out as an Airbnb location. So really non-standard, remote, rural, unique area that took a lot of doing just to get there. But arriving there and being in a situation where you do not have certain infrastructural things like electricity, internet all the time, and the, the people there, they, they don't see strangers very often. It's a completely agrarian society where they harvest rice and they eat the rice. And, and that's like what the, the meal system is like. Being in a place like that, it's... It's common to kind of romanticize it in a certain, a certain monk type of way and, and kind of a, um, a reversion to the agrarian nostalgia type of thing. But there really is a certain type of value that you have when your options are stripped away. And there's no social function that you need to be at. And there's nothing super complicated available in terms of the options that you have in terms of what you do. And I spent I, – I already spent a whole lot of time sitting – and thinking and walking around, talking to no one, just looking around at things and trying to be exposed to new things. And there, all of these activities were amplified a little bit because there, there was really nothing to do. People were busy and everybody was very friendly, um, but their English wasn't necessarily great. And so like I was trying to pick up some of their language, but the communication was still quite limited. And, and when you do have those types of limitations in place and you cannot get anywhere in a reasonable amount of time and go do these normal things that you would do to pacify yourself or to entertain yourself when you get bored, you really do fall into a beneficial type of self-actualization space where you recognize what really is important because you, you miss it and you continue to miss it. And it is something that you recognize like, hey, that app that was on my phone that I can't use out here that actually was really valuable to me. That actually was something that was valuable. Whereas when you return and you go someplace else after living in a place like that, uh, you find yourself, all of your habits are gone. So all of the little habits, the little quick twitch things where you just activate a certain app on your phone or grab a certain device uh, without even thinking about it, you don't do that anymore because you didn't have access to it for a time. Uh, so places like that, I think, are really super valuable. If you haven't lived in one before, obviously, if you, if you have, it might be the opposite going to a place like, I don't know, New York, where you can have a different type of anonymity in a crowd of people. Somewhere I, I came across a term you use called modular rituals, which I'd never heard before. And I thought it was such an interesting perspective on routines or rituals or like we just talked about in this village of the Philippines, habits. Could you just run that for us? Like what's, how do you see modular rituals? Yeah, the, the concept is this, that when you are traveling regularly in particular, you don't necessarily know what type of infrastructure you'll have available. So if your entire well-being is predicated on getting up each morning, doing 10 minutes of meditation, making your pour over coffee in a very specific way, listening to a certain podcast, like if you have these very specific things that are dependent on a whole lot of outside variables or technologies or resources, you are very then limited in the number of places that you can go because you need to have access to all of these things in order to function optimally the way that you've structured your life. And for me, I wanted to benefit from things like working out regularly, 
but I didn't want to create a situation in which I limited myself in terms of where I could go. So I tried to structure uh, any of these rituals or habits that I developed in such a way that I could do them any time of day and that I could do them with only what I had with me, which, which essentially means just uh, the amount of space that I need to lay down. I, my workout, for example, I call my prison workout because I could do it in a prison where I just have enough room to lay down. It's all body weight resistance exercises. I don't need any special equipment. I don't need workout clothing. I could do it wherever. I've done this in airports. Uh, like I could do it wherever. And then every other thing is like that as well. So I try to be, uh, to have as little dependency on very specific resources and uh, situational like circumstances as possible. And that also then allows me to move them around because I don't know what my schedule is going to be like in these different places. I, I might wake up at completely different times depending on which hemisphere I'm in. I might uh, change my routine because of the culture. Like in, in Iceland, people wake up on average a whole lot later than elsewhere. Usually work doesn't start until like a later, uh, an hour later compared to, to other European countries. So your routine should be malleable, ideally, if you're going to be traveling, so that you're not like bringing a cookie cutter with you and trying to turn the local culture into something that looks like your familiar culture. You instead want to bend yourself to suit the local culture so that then you learn something, you, you pick up something of what they do and how they see the world. And then you can take from that whatever you will to your next location, but you're not trying to make it conform to your existing standards. But I guess you've still got to have a degree of discipline, haven't you? Because some people could say, well, because this has changed the circumstance, local cultures, then I will be malleable. I just won't do what I'm going to do. So I guess (laughs) sitting as part of that's got to be a fundamental discipline to say, I have this modular thing. I'm still going to get it done. I'm just going to do it in a different way. Yeah, yeah, it does. It, it's a self-discipline, I think, can't help but emerge if you spend enough time traveling, because especially if you travel alone, because then very suddenly everything is on you and you have planes that you have to catch and you have troublesome situations that you have to work your way out of it. And, and you, you develop a certain type of confidence, I think, over time because you realize, one, the worst case scenario very seldom is as bad as you think it will be. And you, you learn to MacGyver your way out of whatever happens to, to, to come your way, whatever strange circumstance occurs, you can figure out a way out of it. But you are responsible then too. You're responsible for the good outcomes and you're responsible for the bad outcomes. And a lot of people who spend any amount of time on the road, and I think there's a lot of benefits actually, something I wish they did in the U.S. more, but for like gap year students, where the, or gap year, uh, people who do gap years in between uh, primary schooling and university, you learn a lot of that responsibility because suddenly there's nobody holding your hand and they're not going to make sure that you get to the airport. So that, that type of self-discipline, I think, for me at least, got a whole lot easier once I hit the road and there was no safety nets. Like if I stopped working out and I suddenly became very unhealthy, that's completely on me. I have nobody else to blame. How does Colin Wright see a successful life? Like how do you, how do you look at your own life and go, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty pleased. I'm, I'm grateful for what I have and, and I'm in a really good place. I think there's a lot of different right answers to that. Um, for me, the heuristic that I use typically to check in Uh, particularly when I'm making like a big decision, a a big kind of life pivot where I have some opportunities to do this or do this or do this. And uh, then I check in with myself to see if I I made the right choice, if there's something I could be doing better. Um, If I died right now, like if I'm on, if, if I'm suddenly struck down and I'm put into my deathbed, will I be able to look at my life and say, okay, yeah, that was good. And 
If not, if I have a whole bunch of regrets or something, that probably means that I'm not moving towards something that I consider to be valuable. It probably means that I'm not making choices that I'm happy with. And, and so I like to be able to check in with myself at any moment and say, if I died right now, I could feel gracious about it. I could feel good about it and say, yeah, you know, that was good. I, I enjoyed myself. I had a good time. I feel good about the choices that I made. And if I ever do not feel that immediate gut response of, yeah, that was a good life, then I, I feel like I need to make a pivot in some direction or another. Uh, again, that's not the only correct answer. I think there's a whole lot more for me probably too. I like being able to make my own choices, not being um, confined to certain life paths. I like being able to experiment and challenge myself. And so like daily happiness maybe is a very different thing from like overall life fulfillment. Uh, the vocabulary that we have for this actually is a little bit limited in certain ways if you think about it. Um, but what it comes down to, I think, is, is each person checking in with themselves and saying, for me, my priorities, my beliefs, my experiences, everything that makes up me, am I becoming a better version of myself each day? And am I doing something that aligns with, with who I am and who I would like to be? And is that something that I can feel good about? And, and I think that's probably a good, like, ultra broad, maybe to the point of not being particularly useful, but a, a good ultra broad way of, of defining the, the way to look at that. So, Colin, this has been great on so many levels. Um, but being an international traveler, a man of the world, a man who's been on several podcasts, you've done the TED thing. I think sufficiently we've warmed you up for me to be able to throw to my co-pilot here for a nifty 90. What do you say, Robbo? I think we should do that. Here we go. Here we go. Yeah. Robbo's nifty 90. All right, Colin, you think you're ready then? Let's do it. All right, here we go. What was the last book you read? Uh, oh, gosh. I just finished a book called, I think, Economics from the 1400s till today. Wow. Something like that. I'm, I'm a very popular person, I'm sure. You <laughs> <laughs> well, here's a highball question. What's your favorite color? Oh, I, I tend to err toward blues and grays. So maybe like I'll, I'll go with a slate blue. What's something that really annoys you? People trying to call me on my phone. It's the first time I've had a consistent phone number um, for a very long time. And people having my phone number is really debilitating for me sometimes. All right. Dogs or cats, what's your favorite? I, I kind of like uh, octopi. Can I choose octopi. that? Octopi. You can choose that. We've got a great one here in Australia <laughs> called the Blue Ring Octopus. It's really friendly. Wow. <laughs> Highly poisonous. Yeah, oh, don't okay. touch one if you I'll, ever come across it. Just like most things in Australia, really. Um, what's something you've always wanted to do but have never done? I always actually wanted to learn to cook. And it was something that I didn't start doing till I came here to Wichita. And, and I've always had these girlfriends who are just like amazing chefs. So they wouldn't even bother to try to teach me because they were so much better than me where I, I'd like boil water and burn it. They were so much better. They didn't even know how to talk to caveman cooking column. Uh, so getting into that, it's been amazing. What's three words that you would use to describe yourself? Curious, geeky. I don't know. I feel really, I feel like the third one needs to be really good. Uh, you know, crisp is a really great word. It doesn't apply here. But I've always felt that crisp is a really satisfying Ooh, word. So I'll use word. that. Like Don't that. take good that as an, as an excuse to eat me, any monsters or octopi who are 
listening to this podcast. Well, I'll cross that <laughs> off the list because the next question was, what's your favorite words? So we've just covered that. What's the best advice you would give to someone who wanted to start living a minimalist lifestyle? I would say first take a step back and figure out what you're actually trying to accomplish. Because it's very possible to, to move toward the whole minimalism thing and just start getting rid of stuff. But you'll probably make the wrong choices if you don't think about what you're actually trying to accomplish first. What's something that's best done slowly? <laughs> um, sauteing. <laughs> <laughs> What's the downside of constantly traveling? Uh, you know, you're very often tired when you first meet people, when, when you're changing time zones all the time and you're trying to acclimate to new cultures and cuisines and languages and stuff. Almost always when I meet somebody, I'm probably giving them the impression that I'm just constantly sleepy and no fun and that I go home and, and sleep very early. What's something you need to stop doing? Never have a good answer for this type of question because I'm really almost over careful about noticing bad habits when I identify them and then doing my best to get rid of them. Like the, the first time I did this was when I, I stopped chewing my nails as a kid. And since then, since the, the amazing results I've seen from not chewing my nails, that, that's become a habit of mine. Final one. What's the, what's the one song that gets your mojo going? Um, hold on. Okay. I, I have to check my Spotify here real quick. <laughs> that's cheating. I, this isn't, I know. This is another thing, though, where I listen. I try to expose myself to new music all the time. Oh, there's a song called Mixtape by Tift Merritt that every time that comes on, I, I do a little jig. I'm just making you mixtapes with homemade covers And a lot show And here under the jacket folds inside I've taped my heart for you such an interesting guy, Colin. <laughs> <laughs> I think Gary's in love. Well, thank you. Uh, man, man crush. Man crush. Um, yeah. Um, one, uh, one thing before we let you go back to your home in Wichita, why, why Wichita? Of all places you could have chosen as an international man of travel, why Wichita? Well, I was actually at the premiere for a couple of the premieres that took place in like New York and DC and Boston for that minimalism documentary. And uh, a couple of my readers came up to me afterward just to, to say hello and to ask some questions. And one of them asked me, what's the most exotic place you've ever been? And I kind of jokingly said Wichita, Kansas, uh, because I, I had come here randomly to visit like a cousin when I was nine years old, I think. And the only thing to do in town, I later learned that this is like a little town outside of Wichita, but the only thing to do was to go to Walmart, buy ammo, and then go into a field and shoot at bottles. <laughs> Sweet. Great so to me, that was the most exotic thing I had ever done in my entire life. And even after all these years of travel, I still hadn't encountered that same culture anywhere else I'd gone. And then particularly with the with politics in the US being what they are right now, which is something that I could understand theoretically, but I couldn't quite get my head around. I figured it was good to go straight to the source to, to middle America to expose myself to a lot of these things to to meet people who live in a completely different culture from mine, the way that I do when I travel internationally, but to do it within my own country. Just on that, and I don't want to labor on it, but I am a bit curious have you does it make sense now being there for seven or eight months? Does it make sense to you with your observations, your feelings of Wichita or that sort of midwestern area of the states? Does it make sense 
that the election result was the election result? I oh, it's it's a very big question, but I do think that the perception of what people thought they were going to get was something that was a very compelling sale for a lot of people in rural United States. I don't think the reality of what they're getting is what they actually wanted. And I think if they would have actually believed that this is what they would get, they probably wouldn't have voted the same way. But I think the way it was sold to them, the idea of an outsider, the idea of disrupting and embarrassing all the career politicians, that was very appealing to a whole lot of people who felt that they had been taken advantage of by politicians their entire lives. Yeah, interesting. We could do a whole show on that. Mate, um, <laughs> we've got Donald Trump coming up on the show, don't we? <laughs> Big fan of the show. Yeah. The Trumpster. Uh, he and his whole family. Ivanka, she loves the show. Always leaving us nice reviews on iTunes. She's a lovely girl. Um, mate, thank you so much uh, for getting us into your schedule. You've been very gracious, your information, your views, your philosophies. If folks want to know more about you, uh, what's your telephone number? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, where would you send them, mate, for people who do want to dig in and get to know more about Colin, the work you're doing, the stuff you've done over the last number of years? And i got to say your Instagram account is fantastic. You've got the most beautiful eye for photography. Where, where would you send people apart from your telephone number? <laughs> uh, probably a good place to start is either colin.io, where they can find my books, uh, or Exile Lifestyle, which is my blog, or letsknowthings.com which is my podcast. And then I'm at Colin is my name on pretty much every social network. Brilliant. Well, uh, we're very grateful for your time, mate. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much for having me. This was a blast. Great questions. I, I really appreciate you guys taking the time to ask interesting questions. Hi, it's Lane Beachley here, seven times world surfing champion. I've seen a lot of goofy footers and maybe a few kooks in my lifetime, but Robbo and Gary from the Mojo Radio Show, they definitely taste cake. So if you're new to the show, here's what this segment is all about. We are just giving a shout out to people who we think work really hard, deserve a little pat in the back, a little bit of recognition. And this is our way of saying, good on you, well done. Uh, where are we going this week, mate? I think we've got to go to those lucky people who drag themselves out of bed in the wee early hours of the morning that I don't even realise exist. <laughs> to take themselves off to work. I think shift workers deserve a bit of shout-out, don't you? I read an interesting article uh, only last week or the week before that there is a new category of daycare, mm. and it is basically after-hours daycare. So many people around the world are working through the night. Many people are working two, and you hear it often, quite two or three jobs to get by just to pay the mortgage to have a car, pay for fuel, put basic essentials on the table, pay for education for their children, let alone having a bit of FUN. And these people, of course, have to get it done. They have no choice because they've got expenses. And so they have after-hours daycare where they can take their children in at, say, 8 o'clock at night and pick them up at 5 o'clock in the morning when they get home from daycare. So this is shift workers is not just a choice for a lot of people this is a second or third job and it's bloody hard oh absolutely but shouldn't they call it night care well probably but the other thing is that how damn expensive it is in many parts of the world the daycare is so expensive even though mum or dad is slightly getting ahead by doing this second or third job or taking a job at all that requires them to work through the night the expense of daycare 
just takes all the true benefits out of it. So anybody who's working through the night while we sleep and count Zs, uh, anybody who's doing two or three jobs just to get by, man, I tell you what, we salute you big time. I'm going to throw in there those <laughs> those lucky radio producers who produce breakfast shows who get to drag their ass out of bed at 2.30 in the morning to be at work by 3.30 to start work for the breakfast show. Yeah, it's a thankless uh, thankless job. But uh... So there we go. We're going to say shout out to shift workers. Uh, and I'm going to say, I know it's coming up, folks. And this is one of my favourite all-time yeah. classic rock tracks. The old Bobster. The big Bob, oh, big B. Bob and he Bob loves, he loves the show. Oh, he loves the show and he loves his night moves. Always tweeting about us. Here's a bit of Bob Seger night moves. We're out. A little too tall, could have used a few pounds. Tight pants, points, hollering out. She was a black-haired beauty with big dark eyes. And points all her own, sudden way up high. Way up firm and high Out past the cornfields where the woods got heavy Out in the back seat of my 60 Chevy Working on mysteries without any clues Working on our night moves Trying to make some front page driving news Working on our night moves Summertime In the sweet Summertime We were in love Oh no far from We were searching for some High in the sky summer We were just young and Restless and bored Living by the sword Steal away every chance we could To the back room, to the alley, or the trusty woods I used to have she used me, but neither one cared We were getting our share Working on our night moves Trying to lose a awkward teenage blues Working on our night moves
is produced and recorded in the studios of Voodoo Sound. For more tips and tools to get your mojo working, check us out on Facebook at The Mojo Radio Show or online at themojoradioshow.com. For more about Gary, see garybirtwhistle.com or to polish your next audio or video production, check out voodoosound.com.au and for the right voice, realtimecasting.com. Andrew Peters speaking. See you next time.